John chapter 8. We're going to read the passage and then we're going to pray. John 8, verses 48 through 59. This is the word of God. The Jews answered him, Aren't we right in saying that you are Samaritan and demon-possessed? I am not possessed by a demon, said Jesus, but I honor my Father and you dishonor me. I am not seeking glory for myself, but there is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. Very truly I tell you, whoever, whoever obeys my word will never see death. At this they exclaimed, Now we know that you are demon-possessed. Abraham died, and so did the prophets. You say that whoever obeys your word will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham? He died, and so did the prophets. Who do you think you are? Jesus replied, If I glorify myself, my glory means nothing. My father, whom you claim is your God, is the one who glorifies me. Though you do not know him, I know him. If I said I did not, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him and obey his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. He saw it and was glad. You are not yet fifty years old, they said to him, and you have seen Abraham? Very truly I tell you, Jesus answered, before Abraham was born, I am. At this they picked up stones to stone him, but Jesus hid himself, slipping away from the temple grounds. This is the word of God. Let's pray. We worship you this morning, Lord, as nothing less than the I am that you claim to be. As the God who you revealed yourself to Moses in the burning bush, as the eternally existent, self-sufficient, creator of all things, almighty, all-powerful, all-sovereign. And Lord, that's who we come before this morning. We pray that you would give us much grace in preaching this passage, that you would cause us to hear exactly what it is you want us to hear, and that by your grace we would then live in accordance with those truths. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Good morning. You know, I wasn't planning on getting this, to this part until the end, but I think sometimes it's easy to become desensitized to some of the amazing things that the Scriptures say. Like, look at verse 51. Jesus says, Very truly I tell you, whoever obeys my word will never see death. That is... That is such an incredible statement. And there are billions of people throughout history who would have paid so much money to find out how to never die. And here Christ tells us, and he's, he's telling us the truth, because he is truth. He's telling us that it's possible, really possible for us to never die. And that we can never die by keeping his word. This is something that, that should cause us to be so attentive. We should be paying our full attention to exactly what it is he's going to say to us. Because this is such an amazing truth. And here he's offering it to us freely this morning. What this passage does is it paints an amazing contrast between Christ and man. It, it, does, it creates this picture of, of Christ and all of his glorification and all of his righteousness and all of his honor and all those who honor him. And then man, it paints the picture of him as the criminal that he really is. And so that's exactly what I want us to see this morning. And then it's from this contrast that it brings forth the good news. It's in light of this sharp distinction and huge difference between man and Christ that God tells us how we can live forever. And so the three main points I have for you are God's glorification, 
man's criminalization, and the cure for death. And I'm really sorry. I know that second one's kind of hard. I wanted all of them to end in Asian, but as you can tell, I couldn't figure something out for the third point. So hopefully at least the first two will be easier for you to remember. Now let's get, first off, Christ's glorification. Now, what is glorification? This is something that we've talked about a lot in church before. And sometimes it's easy, since it's a church word, to leave it as ambiguous and not really understand what it says. But when we're talking about glory, when we're talking about glorifying somebody or something, we don't just mean praising that person or singing songs to that person or even worshiping them per se. What we really mean is is to glorify somebody is to reveal and to reflect their character and nature. It's to be an image of them. It's to be a mirror of them. It's to be a reflector of who they are. And so when we talk about glorifying Christ, we're talking about making images and, and being reflections of who he is. And so glorification is the process or the activity or the operation of revealing somebody's character or nature or somethings. In Greek, it's, it's closely tied to the same word we get doctrine from, which means that there's a hugely important relationship between glorifying somebody or something and the truth about that something. In other words, when we glorify somebody, it means we're making this person out for who they are, that we're reflecting them for what they is, that, that we're purporting and living in accordance with the truth of who they are. I mean, of course, much praise and much worship is evoked from this, and it's even a form of worship itself. If you find somebody so honorable and so valuable that you, you want to emulate them, you want to be like them, you want to be an image of them, that's the highest form of worship that there is. Now, this passage has much to reveal about Christ's glorification, and that's the first thing I want us to see this morning. Now, just a brief recap here. We left off last week. In fact, the past couple of weeks, we've been engaging in this dialogue with Jesus between Jesus and the Jewish leaders in the temple courts. If you remember, Jesus stood up on the last day of the Feast of Booths, and this is still a continuing dialogue that he's been having with the Jewish leaders. They've been disputing with him over who he is and, and his claims to, um, to Messiahship. And then, of course, um, he's dealing with them as his, as his opponents. And now we get to this point. I'm going to read to you verses 42 through 47 to kind of put, put this into perspective again. This is where we left off last week. Jesus said to them, If God were your father, you would love me, for I have come here from God. I have not come on my own. God sent me. Why is my language not clear to you? It's because you are unable to hear what I say. You belong to your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. And when he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Yet because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. Can any of you prove me guilty of sin? I am telling the truth. Why don't you believe me? Whoever belongs to God hears what God says. The reason you do not hear is that you do not belong to God. How did the Jews reply to him? Verse 8. They answered saying, Aren't we right in saying that you are Samaritan and demon-possessed? That's where we leave off today. He's just told them that they're children of the devil, that they're of their father, who is a father of lies, that they don't belong to God. And since they don't belong to God, they can't hear what he says. And of course, their response is, you're out of your mind. You're demon-possessed, and you're a Samaritan. And that was an extremely offensive insult. Because Samaritans were viewed as, as half-breeds, as, as pseudo-Jews. They were considered blasphemers and, and heretics. And if you recall from Ezra, they wanted to help participate in, in the rebuilding of the temple and a dispute arose, and so there was still a lot of bad blood between Jews and Samaritans at this time. 
And so to call Christ that was, was an extremely derogatory um, accusation against him. And yet he doesn't even deal with that. Instead, he responds to their claim that, that he's demon-possessed. And he says in verse 49, the first part of it, very calmly, I am not possessed by a demon. And then he proceeds to turn the accusation around against them. He says, but I honor my father, and you dishonor me. You see, the Jews saw him as glorifying and as exalting himself in their presence. Because this whole dialogue ensued from Christ's actions on the Sabbath when he healed the, the lame man by the, by the pool at Bethesda. Sorry. And so he's still trying to justify his actions and, and prove to them that, that he is the Messiah, that he does have the authority to do these things that he does, that he does have the authority to teach the things that he does. And so the Jews see him here as making himself out as, as some you know, high authority teacher, which he is. That's exactly what he's doing, actually. Um, and what he does here is he justifies his actions or statements by declaring that he is not seeking glory for himself. So he tells the Jews that his motive behind all of this is not to receive glory or to receive honor or praise from them. He's not doing this to get their credit or to get their approval. His approval comes from somebody else. And more specifically, he says that he is not seeking glory for himself, but there is somebody else who is. John chapter, sorry, John chapter 5, no, I have it wrong in my notes, it's not John chapter 5. John chapter 8, where we read here, he says in verse 50, I am not seeking glory for myself, but there is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. The first thing that we see is that he's not seeking glory for himself, but then we find out later in this, in this passage that to seek glory for yourself is meaningless. Verse 54, Jesus replied, If I glorify myself, my glory means nothing. Now what does he mean by that? Self-glorification is meaningless. And in light of the definition of, of glorification that we just gave, that should be pretty clear. That if glorification is being an image or a reflection of somebody else, you can't do that for yourself because you are your own image. You are your own reflection. You can't reflect yourself. You can't be an image of yourself. And so in that sense, it is meaningless to glorify yourself. But in this context, it has more to do with his, the, the authority with which he's teaching or, or the authority with which he's doing these actions. In other words, it has more to do with his credentials that they're talking about here. Who gave you the right to say these things and to teach these things and to do these things on the Sabbath? That's more with what they're dealing with. And of course, it would be foolish to say that, that my authority comes from myself or the right I have to say and do these things comes from myself. It would be no different than, than if I came to you and pretended to be a doctor and, and recommended a certain medical procedure without having any background or, or credentials in medicine of any kind. Or perhaps if I came to you and posed myself as a financial advisor, you would want to know my credentials. You would want to know what gave me the authority to, to speak on such matters intelligently. And that's very much the same thing that's going on here. They want to know, who are you to say these things, Christ? Who gives you the credentials to make these claims about eternal life, about doing things on the Sabbath? And of course, I mean, even, even in our own public school system, we have accreditors who, who accredit colleges and schools to to license them to teach, and similarly we have teaching credentials which are required for you to get if you're going to teach on a certain subject. It's the same way with Christ. They want to know his credentials. They want to know what gives him the approval and the authority to do and say what he's saying. We should care about this too. We can't, I mean, these are such huge claims to make that to trust Christ 
and then be fooled by him would be a catastrophic mistake. And so what is exactly his credentials? Who accredits him? Who gives him the authority to teach on these things? And we see a few things. First, from verse 50, we find out that it's not Christ. He's not seeking this glory for himself. He's not seeking approval or accrediting himself. What we find in verse 50 is that there is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. And we get a little bit more clarity on this in verse 54. He says, My Father, whom you claim as your God, is the one who glorifies me. That's after saying, if I glorify myself, my glory means nothing. So God the Father is the one who accredits Christ. God the Father is the one who gives Christ the authority to teach on these matters. And I can't think of a more worthy accreditor than God the Father. There's nobody else whose, whose approval and whose um, giving of authority to teach would be more valuable than God. He's omniscient. He's all-powerful. He knows absolutely everything about Christ and everything about truth. He is truth. He cannot lie. He's unbiased. He's a perfect judge. And this is the person who's giving Christ his approval to teach. This is the person who glorifies him. This is the person who credits and honors him and praises him. Not Christ himself, but God the Father. This passage points out specifically that this accreditor of Christ is the judge. It says in verse 50, there is one who seeks it referring to God the Father, and he is the judge. Now that's an extremely important statement to make, and it might seem odd if you're not reading it in the context of, of Christ trying to justify his actions to the Jews. Because when he says that he's the judge, he means that his verdict is the only one that matters. That what this person says is matter of fact. It's final. It's, it's the last decision. You can imagine that if you're in a court and perhaps you're being tried for some crime, um, a misdemeanor, there's no jury involved. It doesn't really matter what your friends think. It doesn't matter what your coworkers thought about what you did. What matters is what the judge says. That's what's going to go. That's going to be your, your penalty or your consequence henceforth. It's his verdict. And the same way with Christ, God the Father as the judge is the only one who has the verdict that matters. His approval is the only one that, that we should desire and Christ has that approval. So not only should our trust be in him completely, but the Jews should be seeing this and they should be rejoicing as well. Obviously, that's not their response. Furthermore, not only is God the Father as the judge perfect in his decision and in his judgment and the verdict that he renders, but this accreditor of Christ, God the Father, holds the highest status to the Jews, or should at least. He says in, in, verse, in the latter part of verse 54, my Father, whom you claim as your God, is the one who glorifies me. You would think that that would cause them to think a little bit, that their God is the one who accredits Christ. Their God is the one who gives Christ his teaching credentials. Their God is the one who glorifies him, who honors him, who praises him. Surely, there's nobody higher that they could appeal to, that Christ could appeal to, than God. Christ also, he, he delineates his relationship with the Father here. We can see in verse 55, he says, talking to the Jews now, though you do not know him, I know him. And if I said I did not, I would be a liar like you. But I know him and I obey his word. What this means is that Christ's relationship with the Father is just not some accrediting agency outside of him, but Christ knows the Father intimately and personally, which implies that the Father also knows Christ 
personally. And so not only is there anybody better to accredit Christ, but there's nobody more qualified to accredit Christ. And Christ not only knows the Father deeply, but he obeys his word. Now there's a huge connection here between knowing and obeying, between seeing and honoring. You can imagine if, if I put two jewels before you, if I put two rings before you, and one was a fake jewel and the other was a real jewel, unless you were skilled in, in being able to, to determine and, and see just with your eyes which, which was real and which was fake, you would not be able to value the proper one. And yet, with Christ, he does see God clearly. He does know all of the details of who he is. And so he values him properly. He honors him rightly. And he obeys his word perfectly. He has that relationship with God. He knows him. And God also knows Christ. And so his judgment is perfect. And it's accurate. And all of the authority and all of the glorification that Christ would require in order to teach and do the things that he does, he receives from God. And this, this idea of, of obeying his word, sometimes that, that comes off a little weak in our translations. A lot, of, a lot of the Bibles that you have will say that they keep his word. But really, this is more than just preserving or, or maintaining what his word says. It's living by, it's abiding in, it's aligning every aspect of your life in accordance with this word. That's what it means when it says, I obey his word. And I keep his word. And of course, with reference to Christ, he did that perfectly. He did that perfectly. And so, in light of verse 51, very, very truly I tell you, whoever obeys my word will never see death. Christ will never see death. He will live forever. And yet, if you know the gospel story at all, you know that that's not quite how it ends, but in a way it does because he rises from the dead again. Christ has eternal life because he kept the word of God, perfectly. We'll return to that more in the end, but right now it's important to recognize that his obedience was perfect, that he knew God, that he saw God for who he was, and so he valued him properly, he honored him properly, and it led to him keeping his word perfectly, which means that he lives forever. Now, you would think that being accredited by God the Father is enough for the Jews, but Christ takes it a step further, and he says he's not only accredited by their Father with a capital F, but he's also accredited by their father with a lowercase f, by Abraham. And we see this in verse 56. Jesus continues saying, Your father Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. And he saw it and was glad. What he's saying is that Abraham rejoiced in the thought of Christ. And there's a lot of debate on what it means by when he saw it and he was glad. Um, it, it doesn't mean that Abraham was able to foresee into the future and see Christ. What it likely means is that Abraham, in, in his um, experiences with, with Isaac and, and with God's faithfulness to his promises, saw Christ metaphorically and was glad and rejoiced in his day. The point is, is that Abraham honored Christ. Abraham glorified Christ. Abraham praised Christ, and he rejoiced in Christ, and he accredited Christ. And so not only does Christ have the accreditation, sorry, not only does he have the accreditation of God the Father, but he has the accreditation of Abraham. The two highest claims, the two highest sources of approval, he has both, he says. You can't get more justification for your actions. You can't have better teaching credentials than that. And so what does he do with, this, with these two accreditors on either side? God the Father 
the divine accreditor, the most important accreditor, who the Jews claim as their God, and then Abraham, who the Jews claim as their father. He has both of these established. Now what claim does he make? It's probably one of the most glorious claims that Christ makes in the entire Bible, and he makes it in the last verses. Verse 56, I'm just going to read verses 56 through 58. He says, Your father Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. He saw it and was glad. And the Jews replied, referring to his physical age, You are not yet 50 years old, they said to him, and you have seen Abraham? And then Christ makes this extraordinary statement. Having Abraham as his accreditor and God as his accreditor, he says, Very truly I tell you, before Abraham was born, I am. He claims the divine title of the great I am, the title that, that God gave Moses when he asked him, Lord, what name should I tell the people when I, when, when, when I go to them that you've sent me? He tells them, my name is the I am. My name is Yahweh. And that's the exact same title that Christ claims, now having established his authority to teach based on the approval of the Father and the glorification from him by Abraham. I would like you to turn to a second for Colossians chapter 1. Colossians 1, I'm going to read verses 15 through 18. Colossians 1. Many of you will be familiar with this passage because it's, it's famous for demonstrating the supremacy of Christ. And reading here verses 15 through 18, when Christ is claiming divinity, when he's claiming to be the I am, these are some of the things that are involved in that claim. Paul writes, The Son, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him because he is God. He is the I am. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn among the dead, so that everything in him, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. This is Christ. This is the claim that he makes. It's to being the great I am, to being the firstborn, to being before all things, to being the alpha and the omega, to being the creator of all things and the sustainer of all things. This is what he calls himself. And as you can imagine, the response by the Jews. They recognize exactly what claim he's making. And they proceed to stone him. You can turn back now to John chapter 8. And we read, after making this claim in verse 58, Very truly I tell you, Jesus answered, Before Abraham was born, I am. And at this, the Jews picked up stones to stone him. But Jesus hid himself, slipping away from the temple grounds. At this time, <clears throat> Herod's temple was still under construction. So, it was likely that there were actually stones literally lying around in the temple courts that the Jews picked up and intended to stone him with. And of course, Christ escapes because it's not his time to die yet. And some people try to read this as a miraculous escape, but it's, it's unlikely that that was the case, unlike the one that we have in Luke. It's more like something that you would see in a movie where the crowds gather around him or he slipped out of the temple covertly. Either way, he escaped because it wasn't his time to die. Yet the Jews, in response to this claim that that Jesus is the I am, 
that before Abraham was, he was existent. This isn't talking about somebody who just existed before Abraham, but that he existed presently at all times, in the past and the present and the future. That he's claiming self-existence. He's claiming pre-existence. He's claiming self-sufficiency here. And the Jews understand exactly what he's getting at, and so, of course, their response is to kill him. Now, before moving on, I just want to give a, a brief summary. This passage reveals a lot of things about the glorification of Christ. And the first is that Christ is not seeking his own glory. He's not seeking it for himself. But the second is that there are people that, that seek his glory. And in this case, the, his two, the two highest accreditors you can imagine are those who give him the authority to teach, are those who glorify him and, and seek his honor and his praise and his credit. You have God the Father and you have Abraham. Those are the ones who seek the glory of Christ. Those are the ones who establish his credentials. And then in light of those credentials, Christ makes the most extraordinary claim that he is the I am, that before Abraham was, he is. This should greatly increase our faith in Christ, knowing that God the Father is his accreditor. This should greatly increase our faith in the word of God, knowing that these are his words and they're backed by the Father as well. And, of course, it should lead us to want to accredit and, and glorify and honor and seek the praise of Christ as well, since this is, this is what righteousness is, and we desire to be righteous since we love God. Now, in, in Exodus chapter 3, verses 13 through 15, we find that, that blasphemy is, is a crime that's actually punishable by death. And in Leviticus 24, verse 14, God commands, take the blasphemer outside the camp, and all those who heard him are to lay their hands on his head, and the entire assembly is to stone him. So the Jews were acting in accordance with their law. They heard a man claiming to be God, and so they picked up stones to stone him. Now, they weren't following the due process of law. Obviously, he was supposed to be tried, and then only after being found guilty, he was supposed to be taken outside the camp and then be stoned. But instead, out of their anger and out of their fury, they tried to kill him then and there. What it reveals is the condition of their heart. That rather than responding to these claims of Christ, hearing that God is, is Christ's accreditor, and then Abraham, their father, is also his accreditor, and then believing what he says, that he is the great I am, they respond to it and interpret it as blasphemy and rightly act in, in motion to kill him out of their anger. This reveals so much about their sinfulness and it reveals so much about our hearts as, as God-hating men. And so now I want to take uh, a few moments to, to look at what this passage teaches about the sinfulness of man as well. The main thing that, that this piece of Scripture does is it contrasts man and Christ. I alluded to that at the beginning, but there's, there's so much here that doesn't make its way into the English. It's emphatic, the contrasts that take place. It's I and you, Christ and the Jews, God and man, back and forth, I do this, but you do this. You are like this, but I am like this. And so we've gotten this picture of the glorification of Christ. And then at the other side of the spectrum, about as far at the other end as you can get, infinitely at the other end, you have the sinfulness and the, criminal, and the criminality of mankind. This is first demonstrated, as, as we looked at, in the response of man to the truth about not only God, but then also himself. Going back all the way to the beginning in verse 48, after Jesus makes these claims about, um, about them being children of the devil and not belonging to God and how he's the son of God, the Jews answered him, 
saying, aren't we right in saying that you are Samaritan and demon-possessed? So their response to the truth, that's what it is. It's derogatory, it's insulting, it's an accusation, and it reveals that, that they're dead to the truth, that they're unable to believe, that they are exactly what Christ said they were, that they don't belong to God. And when, when you hear this, I want you to hear this as yourself, because the Jews represent us, and their response, their heart towards Christ, represents our heart towards Christ, apart from his love and his Holy Spirit. First thing we find is that these men are dead to truth, and that rather than dealing with his arguments, they attack him as a person, because that's all that they can do. Now, there's a whole lot of irony here, because they're accusing him of blasphemy, and yet they're really the blasphemers here. They're slandering the Son of God, calling him a Samaritan, and claiming that he's demon-possessed. They're the ones who really should be taken outside the camp and stoned. But instead, they want to stone him because they see him as the blasphemer. It's so ironic. And when I first read this, my response was one of anger. I wanted to come through the pages and punch out these Jewish leaders who would say such wicked things. And then I realized if I did that, I would have to punch out myself and have to punch out you too because you're the exact same way. And yet this is, this is the heart of man responding to Christ with nothing but hatred, nothing but anger, when it's really us who deserves his wrath, and we're the ones exerting our wrath on him. We're like the demon-possessed fools that we claim Christ to be. And Jesus alludes to this in the 49th verse. He says, I am not demon-possessed, but I honor my Father, and you dishonor me. The but that he uses here is intended to draw a parallelism between Christ, between their claim that he's demon-possessed, Jesus saying, I'm not, but you are. And he's saying that in the same way as in you dishonor me. And so this passage makes us out as the demon-possessed fools that we claim Christ to be. It turns that around on us. And then in that same verse, we find that, that we are those who dishonor God, that we are those who do not keep his word. And not only do we dishonor Christ, but we dishonor the Father. It says here that we dishonor Christ. This is Jesus speaking, and he says, I honor, I honor my Father, but you dishonor me. Yet, el- yet elsewhere, it makes it clear that to dishonor the Son is to dishonor the Father. And so not only have we dishonored Christ, the Son of God, but then we've dishonored God the Father himself. The contrast is so sharp here, and I apologize for not making it as clear as I want it to, but we, we should be seeing the glorification of Christ as so totally different and set apart and the exact opposite of the hearts of man, which is so wicked and so dark. It's like when you look out at the night sky and you see the stars against the blackness of the night. You, you can see the difference between the stars. You can see the brilliance of the stars because it's against the darkness of the night. And you can also see how dark the night is because it's against the brilliance of the stars. And in the same way, we should be able to look in this passage at the glorification of Christ and see his brilliance and see his beauty against the the stark contrast of our ugliness and our wickedness and our hatefulness and our sinfulness. That's what this passage is trying to do. And that's, that's what we need to see. Not only do we dishonor God, not only do we respond to his truth with the deadness to the truth and derogatory, insulting attacks, but then this passage also reveals that we are fundamentally faithless. 
in verse 52, it says that the Jews exclaimed, Now we know that you are demon-possessed. Abraham died, and so did the prophets. You say that whoever obeys your word will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham? He died, and so did the prophets. Who do you think you are? Once again, another derogatory remark towards Christ, that who do you think you are is not a nice question. It's, it's a question of, of who do you think you are, as in you're nobody, you can't say these things. It reveals a faithlessness, a faithlessness in his word. They say, what is your word that it could produce such an effect to save somebody from death? Not even Abraham, the greatest man in our minds, was able to escape death, and nor were the prophets. So what's so special about your word? So faithless. They're fundamentally deceived. They believe lies. And we are the fools, and yet we think it's Christ who's demon-possessed. You see, as, as sinners, as God-haters, we interpret everything. We interpret reality in light of our, our sinful frameworks and our sinful delusions. And the workings of our heart, as revealed here, are, are so totally corrupt. We judge foolishly. And, and their foolish judgment here is also contrasted to the perfect judgment of Christ, and to the perfect judgment of God, who is the judge, as it says. This verse, verses 52 through 53, show that we judge by outward appearance. That, as he says in, in verse 57, you are not yet 50 years old. That's, that, that's meant to be an insult, but it's also thinking in terms of, of, of totally carnal and physical terms. And similarly, in, in the 52nd through 53rd verses, we see that it's ironic again, he's comparing, they're comparing Christ to other men. They're comparing him to others, and they're saying, these men died, what makes you think that you're so special that you can't die too? Basically, it puts, we put ourselves in God's spot as the judge, and we put ourselves in the position to make these judgments, but it's impossible for us because our hearts and our minds are so totally corrupt. And as he says in verse 55, I'll read it to you. Though you do not know him, I know him. And if I said I did not, I would be a liar like you. Not only do we believe lies, but we're liars ourselves. We truly are sons and daughters of the father of lies, who is the devil. You have the contrast once again between the son of God and the son of Satan. We're sons of the devil we're not only believers in lies, but we're also liars ourselves. And then probably one of the sharpest contrasts that we're given here is that we do not know God. And he says that in, in John chapter 8, once again, verses 54, in, in verse 54, he says, If I glorify myself, my glory means nothing. My Father, whom you claim as your God, is the one who glorifies me. Though you do not know him, I know him. And this is something that, that you can't get in your translations, but a different word is used here for know in the first one than it is in the second one. In the first word, it's know as in to know personally, to know experientially, to know firsthand. You don't know God firsthand. You have not experienced God. You do not have a relationship with God. And in the second know, it's you do not see God. And, and he's, he's saying that that's, that's true of them, that they don't see God, but then that he actually sees God. He beholds him in person. He sees him with his eyes, metaphorically. And so the first is, is a remark against the Jews saying, you do not know him. You do not have a personal relationship with him. And the second is, but I do. And not only do I have a personal relationship with him, but I see him face to face. It contrasts the darkness of our hearts with 
with the glory of Christ and the intimacy of Christ's relationship with God versus the total horribly wrong relationship that we have with God in, in not knowing him personally or experientially. And then, even worse, they thought that they knew God, but they didn't. Because it says in verse, in verse 54, my father whom you claim as your God is the one who glorifies me. The implication being that he's not actually your God. But they think he is. They believe that, that Yahweh, that the great I am of the Old Testament, is their God, but really he's not. He's the God of Christ, yes, but we do not know him. And the same is true of, of so many Christians today who claim that, that this is their God, that Jesus is their Lord, but their lives leave you with no other conclusion other than that what they're saying is not true. We should be very careful to examine ourselves to make sure we don't end up like the majority of people on that last day, crying out to Christ as, as Lord, Lord, and yet finding out that he never knew us in the first place. We have no relationship with God, right relationship with God apart from Christ. That's clear from the Jews having no right relationship with God apart from Christ. And yet the Jews thought that they did. They thought that they knew God, but they didn't. And the same is true of so many sinners today. And last but not least, we do not keep his word. We do not keep his commands. He says, I honor my father, but you dishonor me. And then he says later on in verse 51, whoever obeys my word will never see death. Well, we don't obey his word. In fact, the scriptures teach that we're perfectly disobedient to his word apart from Christ. Even that something as, as basic as the Ten Commandments, we can use to see that, that we have broken thousands upon thousands upon thousands of times. We have all lied and stolen and cheated and committed adultery in our minds by lusting and murder by, by sinning against our brothers and sisters in anger. We have not loved God first and foremost with all of our heart and our mind and our soul and our strength. We have set up idols in our lives. We have coveted and, and we have lied like our father the devil. And in all of these ways, we, we see that we have absolutely failed to keep God's law. That we are totally disobedient. And because of that, we will not live forever as well. The inverse of that statement is also true. We end this, this exploration of, of man's sinfulness by arriving again at verse 58. Jesus claims to be God. He's established his authority to make such claims. And then he says, I am the I am. And in verse 58, sorry, verse 59, at this, the Jews picked up stones to stone him. That's the response. It's murderous, it's hateful, and it's unjust. And that is a fitting description of our hearts. I hope you, you're starting to see that the contrast here that, that's, that's being drawn out from this passage. We've seen first the glorification of Christ and, and those who approve of him and, and them being the highest sources possible and then him claiming divinity himself. And then what you see is, is man at the very end of the passage wanting to kill him, filled with murder and filled with hate. And yet, of course, Jesus escapes, and he escapes because it's not his proper time. But the reality is that eventually the Jews do kill him. They don't murder him here, but in time they do murder him. That wicked desire of theirs culminates in, in not only stoning him, but in crucifying him on the cross, the worst death they could possibly give him. And yet at the same time, that's the precise thing that God used to save their souls. 
that their murder and their hate, which, which resulted in Christ being crucified on a Roman cross, that was the very thing that God had determined to use to save them, to bless them with the eternal life that he freely offers here in verse 51. So I want to talk about the last point, which is the cure for death. And the first thing that we must do is have a right fear, a right fear produced by, by verses 50 and, and, and the ones before that. He says, Jesus is responding to the claim that he's demon-possessed, and he says, I am not possessed by a demon, but I honor my Father, and you dishonor me. And then he says, this should terrify us, I am not seeking glory for myself, but there is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. Now, you, you might be wondering why we should find that so terrifying. We should find that so terrifying because the Father is seeking the glory of the Son, and because the Father is the judge. And in light of the fact that, of the previous verse, that Christ honors the Father, but we have dishonored Christ, we have dishonored Christ, and God is seeking the glory of Christ, he's seeking the honor of Christ, and he is the judge. Now, if, if you're having a hard time seeing why this would be, um, so, why this should be so terrifying to us, imagine if, if, if you're a parent and, and your child whom you love so dearly, is, is molested or harmed or, or something terrible happens to him like that. Out of your love for your child, you would feel probably the, the highest form of, of rage and of anger that you possibly could towards whoever did that to your child. And, and if you're a child, you can imagine that your parents would probably feel that same way if something like that had happened to you. And yet, how much more so would that be with God, who so dearly and preciously and perfectly loves Christ, who seeks Christ's glory, who honors Christ supremely, and then we dishonor Christ, that should cause us to fear him greatly. That we deserve his just wrath. And not only should we be afraid because we've dishonored him and he honors Christ and he seeks the glory of Christ, but he's in the position to judge us for it because it says that he is the judge. It should cause us to fear not only him, but then also his wrath greatly because we know that he's perfectly just and sinning against him in these ways, we've warranted all of the wrath that the scriptures say that we deserve. In one sense, God's love is, is one of the most comforting doctrines in the scriptures. And in another sense, it's one of the most terrifying doctrines in the scriptures because of his love for Christ and because of the fact that we've so greatly dishonored Christ. And yet, it's in light of this contrast between Christ and man, his glorification and our criminalization, that the gospel comes through, that Christ offers us the good news in verse 51. He says, very truly I tell you, after saying that our father, that his father is seeking his glory and that he's the judge, he says, I tell you, whoever obeys my word will never see death. And there's an emphasis there on the word my. It's on my word. Whoever obeys my word will never see death. That's the cure. That's the remarkable, amazing truth, that it is actually possible to never die. How do you do it? You do it by keeping God's word. The problem, of course, is that we don't keep his word, and it's too late to start now because we already haven't kept it, and so it's impossible to keep it. And furthermore, the inverse of the statement is also true. He says, whoever obeys my word will never see death, but you can flip it around. Whoever disobeys my word will see death. 
And we saw, if there's one thing that we've seen clearly from this passage, is that we have disobeyed his word, and that's so eminently clear against the perfect obedience of Christ. That is our, our destiny, is death, apart from Jesus. And I can promise you, I can make you a guarantee that apart from Christ, you will certainly die. Absolutely, 100%, for sure will happen. But if you're in Christ, you will not die. In fact, you are guaranteed to live forever. Immortality is really achievable. It's the sort of things that, that you would write a fantasy book about or a story or see in a movie, but this is true, that it really is possible for you to live forever. And it's not by you keeping the word yourself. We've already seen that there's no chance of that, that we've already failed miserably. But there is another way that we can be saved. Before explaining that, death must be defined. Because even the greatest Christians that you've known have died. We still die physically, but that's not the death that's in view here. The death, that, the death that's in view here is, is spiritual death. It's eternal death. It's what I would call true death. This physical passing from one realm to another, from one state to another, isn't true death. Death is, is the punishment and the wrath of God. Since life is right relationship with God forever, death is the opposite of that. It's wrong relationship with God forever. And so when Christ says that we will never see death, he doesn't mean we will never see death physically. He means we will never see death really. And the word never see, it's, it's as, as great as you can possibly make it. It's not even you will never experience. It's not even you will never come close. It's that you will never even see it. You will be so far removed from death, it will not even come close to touching you. That's the promise that you have. And yet the, the grave opposite of that is if you disobey death, you, or if you disobey his word, you will not only see death, but you will experience it in its fullest. In its fullest. And in the true sense of the word, not physical death, or not as Paul would describe the Christian as falling asleep, but death eternally, death forever. And so the, the plea that, that you should hear from Christ this morning is in light of this sharp contrast, it's to live, it's to not die, you don't have to die. Keeping his word means that you can live forever. And he's made a way for you to keep his word, not by you keeping it yourself, but by him keeping it for you. By him keeping it in your place. And one of the most glorious things that this chapter reveals, out of this contrast between the glorification of Christ and the sinfulness of man, is it reveals the magnitude of the substitution that took place on the cross. Because that's exactly what happened. We switched places. That's the good news. That God, the great and the glorious I am, actually became a human being so that he could suffer this death in your place. And when we recognize how extremely glorious Christ is and how extremely sinful we are, we see how magnificent it is that we've switched places. Because it's such a huge difference between us. He became man and he obeyed God's word perfectly. He kept his word perfectly. He kept his law. He fulfilled it in every sense that it could possibly be fulfilled. And thus Christ earned eternal life. He deserved eternal life because he had a right relationship with God and that is what eternal life is. And yet we disobeyed his word. 
We broke it in every possible sense that we could. And if it weren't for God's grace restraining us, we would never do anything but the most evil thing that we could possibly do. And what we deserve is eternal death. And yet we switch places with Christ. He's taken the eternal death that we deserve and we receive the eternal life that he's earned. We, we, we receive the right relationship with God that he has from perfectly keeping his word. And so that's the great exchange. You have the, the one who's honored God switching out for the one who dishonored God. You have the one who kept his word for the one who didn't keep his word. You have the truth dying in the place of the liar. You have the righteous man for the unrighteous. You have the son of God for the son of Satan. You can't get more extreme as far as this substitution goes. And that's what happened on the cross. Jesus died in our place. He died in our place and he took the full punishment that we deserve for our sins. And in so doing, we receive all of his righteousness. And when God sees us, he sees us as righteous as he sees Christ. We, we should have been stoned for our blasphemy against God. And yet, he was stoned in our place. He was stoned by us. And yet, in us stoning him, God was stoning Christ in our place so that we could live forever, so that we could have a right relationship with him by having our charges dropped, by having our sins forgiven, by being reconciled to him eternally. This is what Christ offers us. And if you still have your Bibles open, in Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 18, the, the same passage which we looked at earlier demonstrating the supremacy of Christ reveals that, that one of the ways, if not the way God most glorified his son was through this great work on the cross. Colossians chapter 1. Verses 15 through 18, we saw that, that, that Christ is, is supreme, that he's over all. And then we find that in, in verse 19, where God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Continuing in verse 21, once you were alienated from God and you were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, but now God has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. That is, if you continue in your faith, established and firm, and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel. That this is what God has done. That this highest of all beings imaginable actually became a man to die in the place of us worst beings imaginable. You can't see yourself worse than you actually are. You cannot have a bad enough view of yourself. You are far more sinful than you can possibly imagine, and Christ is far more glorious than you can possibly imagine, and yet he actually became a man to take the punishment that you deserve so that you could receive the eternal life that he deserved and have right relationship with the Father forever. Abraham saw this, and he rejoiced, and he was glad. And we see that in, in verse 56. I'm turning back now to, to John. Uh, if you have your Bibles, you can open up there. He says in verse 56, Your father Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. He saw it and was glad. He saw it and was glad. He rejoiced, he exulted, he praised in God because he saw the day of Christ. He knew that God, was, that, that God would make atonement for his sins. 
And if you recall, he, he did it, he, he came to this understanding primarily through the analogy with his own son. That when he took Isaac up onto the hill, God commanded Abraham to sacrifice his son Isaac. And when they were going up onto the hill, Isaac was not aware of this, and he was asking Abraham, his father, where is the wood and where is the lamb for the sacrifice? And God, God was assured that, that, or Abraham was assured that, that God would provide for him. And when they got to the top of the mountain, and they had set up the altar, and they laid Isaac down on it, and Abraham was about to slash the throat of his son with a knife, an angel of the Lord came and stopped Abraham and substituted a, a ram in the place of Isaac instead. And that ram represented Christ. That ram represented the atonement that would come in the future. It represented the day of Christ when God would come down to earth, when he would take on the form of a man, and he would die in the place of the sons of Abraham. He would die in the place of Isaac, and he would die in the place of all of those of his elect, of all of those that he's called and chosen to be saved. All true Jews, which you would be included in if your faith is in Christ. And so in that sense, Abraham saw the day of Christ, and he rejoiced in it, and he was glad. He knew that God would make a way for his sins to be forgiven. He didn't know specifically of Christ in terms of, he didn't know the details of Jesus' life, but in the same way that we look back to Christ who saved us, he looked forward to Christ who saved him, and specifically in the analogy with the son. And in closing, one of the most remarkable things about this to me is that in their murder, in the Jews' wicked act, and in Christ's greatest suffering, that was what most glorified Christ. That this is what most revealed and reflected the character and nature of God, which shows how incredibly glorious and loving the nature of God is. That what reveals Him most, what reflects Him most, is suffering and dying for the most unworthy, undeserving criminals in existence. That that's what glorifies him. It reveals how loving he is, how merciful he is, how gracious he is, how absolutely unfathomable his love is and his unconditional election is toward us. That this is what most glorified and this is what most revealed his character and nature, dying on the cross, suffering the worst punishment in the place of the worst people. And then... Of course, our response to that is, is one of conversion. It's, it's repentance. It's turning from our sin and turning from our disobedience and, and turning to Christ and desiring to glorify him as does the righteous father and as did Abraham, desiring to keep his word, not to save us because he kept it in our place to save us, but keeping it because we are saved, keeping it because we love him and we desire to please him and we desire to glorify him. And keeping his word is precisely what does that. And so now in Christ, having received the gift of his grace, having received the sacrifice and the substitution that he made on the cross, we trust in him and we desire to keep his word, not religiously or to save us, because we cannot save ourselves by works, but we're saved by his works, we're saved by his obedience. And then we strive for obedience because that's what glorifies him and we love him now through the cross. The response to the gospel is simple. It's not go to church a lot, it's not read your Bible a lot, it's not pray a lot. It's trust in Christ to be saved. He is your only hope of eternal life. And he is a guarantee of eternal life if you have him. You will never die if you have Christ. And this gift is to be received by faith. It's imparted to every single person who trusts in Christ to save them. If you trust in Christ, you are saved. If you don't, then you're not. 
And so if you don't have trust in Christ, trust in him this morning. He's pleading with you to live. He's offering you freely the gift of eternal life. He's promising you that you can never die, that you can never see death. And he calls you to trust in him, to repent, to confess your sin and turn from it, and trust only in him to save you. And then we join in with, with Abraham and with the Father in living lives that are the most glorifying to Christ that we can possibly live. And in closing, given that that is our purpose, that is why we are here, we were created to be images of God, we want to most glorify God. And so examine yourself. Be, be specific with what ways in which you're not obeying this command. Ask yourself, in what ways am I not keeping his word? How can I keep his word more? What can I do to be more pleasing to him? And then out of your love for him and your desire to, to most glorify him, repent of those things and, and strive to your utmost to live in such a way that, that he's most magnified in everything that you do and say and think and want. Trusting Christ is the cure for death. Jesus' work on the cross, the gospel, he as the person is the cure for death. And it's received by all those who trust in him. He kept his word perfectly in your stead. He kept his word perfectly so that you can be so that before God you can have kept his word perfectly. And so the command is, is to trust in him this morning and then to live forever. For if you trust in him, you're, you have kept his word through him and you will certainly never die. Let's close in prayer. Father, this is such an extraordinary gift we can't even begin to wrap our minds around it. We ask that you would be so gracious with us in convicting us and causing us to repent of our sin before you and then causing us to trust in Christ that you might impart to us this gift of eternal life which you offer to us freely. Lord, glorify yourself in regenerating us. We know that that's what pleases you. We know that that's what you're honored by and that's what you're glorified in. So we ask that you would do that by your spirit, that if there are any of us in here who are not saved, that you would save us this morning. That you would not let us be stubborn and persist in our disobedience as to the Jewish leaders and as we do apart from you in our flesh. That you would be gracious with us and cause us to repent and to trust only in you. For you keep your word perfectly in the place of all of those who trust in you to do so. We ask that you would give us that trust this morning. And it's your name we pray. Amen.